This summer, we've been in a series called David, Shepherd, Warrior, Poet, King, as we've been studying First and Second Samuel together. And we're not studying it chapter by chapter, but the significant parts of David's story and looking at that and seeing uh, what truths and gospel are found in there. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 through 15 this morning, and there's a greater context around this passage, both before and after. It's also found, this story is also found in 1 Chronicles 15. The life of David is, is pretty amazing and significant when you think about it. He's one of the key figures in the Old Testament. He's the second king of Israel, but by far the most prominent in terms of his importance and the covenant that God made with him. And not, not only that, he's the man that is called a man after God's own heart. Who among us, if you're a follower of God, would not want to be called a man or a woman after God's own heart? He gave us the hymnal of the Old Testament, the Psalms. I've often said, if it weren't for the Psalms, I don't think I would know how to pray, and I'm not sure how often I would be led into prayer if it weren't for King David's psalm book for me to, to guide my heart in his poetry and his lyrics into worship, into singing, into being led into prayer. Let's read this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, and I'll read it out loud, and you can follow along in your bulletin or in your Bible. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they had come to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah. To this day, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened an animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the word of the Lord. As uh, you may know, we've been on vacation, the Brown family. Uh, we were in California and then later came back for a week and then we uh, headed out to Oregon where my wife's sister lives. They've been begging us to come up and visit them for some time and they tried to explain Oregon to us, but for some reason we didn't have a, a vision for how great Oregon was. So we finally made it to the great Northwest and uh, four of us did. We flew up and they live in a house with five acres out in the, in the woods and and there's five acres of grass, and I got to mow the grass. This may be the most fun thing I've done in like five years. That's how I grew up, mowing acres and acres of grass and living out in the country. They have chickens, 
and they have goats, and they have a couple dogs, and, and just this glorious landscape. As you look out their back, you can see Mount Hood almost every day, and when it's a very clear day, you can see five different snow-capped mountains. It was absolutely glorious. Oregon is known for its natural beauty. It's known for its weird people. We discovered both of those things. We went out and we saw the coast. We saw uh, the falls of Multnomah. We, we got to see uh, Berry Pick. We got to just see the beauty of Oregon. We're truly struck in awe of how wonderful it is. We also got to go out to several restaurants and, and explore the different food culture downtown and all around uh, Portland, and it was absolutely beautiful. We got to go to a couple restaurants uh, that were known for great burgers, which I really like, and my favorite burger while we were there <coughs> had pickles, had bacon, and had mayo, grilled onions, and house sauce. So you're with me so far, right? Sounds good. But it also had peanut butter. Peanut butter. So I had to order this burger. It's one of the most uh, famous things on their menu. It's called the peanut butter pickle bacon burger. I've got a picture of it for you. Look at this. You can see the peanut butter oozing out from, from the edges. This was the most incredible hamburger I've had in years. The combination of all of these savory flavors just works so perfectly together with the sweet taste of creamy peanut butter. Now, peanut butter works on hamburgers. It just does. You need to try it. And some things that don't seem like they go together just do. This is one of them. You're going to have to trust me. You have to, you have to try it sometime. Now, it may not work the way you're going to try it, but I promise you it works. Sometimes things that don't seem like they go together actually do. And today's passage shows us that God is utterly and completely holy. He's altogether righteous. He's other than us. He's different than us. We can't really get our mind around him at times because of his actions and, and who he is and his character but we also see in this passage that he is altogether good and merciful. And that his steadfast love endures forever. That he's the God who blesses. And in this story, right here, we see juxtaposed to one another two attributes of God that don't seem like they go together, but they do. And you cannot minimize either of these things. God is utterly and completely holy, altogether righteous, and yet he's also the God who is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. He blesses his people. And what I want us to see today is that if you really want to get to like where David was at the end of this story, and I so desperately do, worshiping God with a whole heart, unashamed, in humility, even in public, willing to Worship in such a way, with such abandonment, that his own wife is embarrassed of him. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't, he's humble. He, he is worshiping God at a level that we would all desire to get to. And if you want to get there and encounter him in, in this way, then you need to encounter God the way that he encountered God, which is in his fullness. And I want us to see this morning that only an encounter with the Lord in his fullness will move you to a life of true worship. 
I want that. I want a life of true worship. But here's the thing. When we minimize God, when we box him in, when we truncate him, uh, when we make him small, then we can't possibly experience a life of worship the way David experienced a life of worship. We need God in his fullness. And so the question really for us this morning is, are you allowing God to be God even when you don't understand him? When life is hard and painful and difficult and mysterious and you can't get your heart and mind around, why are things happening the way that they're happening? Why does God's story include all this pain and difficulty and suffering? Are you allowing him to be the holy king of Israel? The king. The king of glory, as David calls him in Psalm 24. Or are you doing what most people do in our culture was make a much smaller version of God and say, well, my God is loving and he's gracious and kind. And of course, who does not want our God to be loving, gracious, and filled with steadfast love? But if you want truly to have the impact and the power of him being loving, you you also most certainly have to receive him as the God who's holy and just and altogether righteous. Now, there's a lot of historical significance in this passage uh, with the Ark of the Covenant, and we need some time to provide some background talking about the role of the Ark of the Covenant in the relationship of God had with his people. First of all, when you hear this word, the Ark of the Covenant, I want you to think presence. Presence. Say that with me. Presence. Not presence, but presence. God's presence with us. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where God localized his presence. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel was a nomadic people wandering in the desert for 40 years and living in tents, and the Lord had them construct a large tent called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a portable version of what would become the temple which David's son Solomon would later build for them. Now, God's presence can never be contained in something so small, it's only about three feet long, as the Ark of the Covenant, so largely that's symbolic, but God's presence exists in all places, in all times. He's omnipotent, and before anything was, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was and is. But God met Moses through a burning bush, and he met him on Mount Sinai, and then he instructed him to build this Ark of the Covenant And when you think ark, uh, you know, you don't think of Noah's ark like a boat. We're talking a a box that he constructed. In great detail, God gave him instructions. And this is where his presence would be localized because God's presence would be with the people of God. At the end of the tabernacle was a place called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the ark of the covenant was kept. And later, when the uh, temple was built, of course, there was the Holy of Holies as well. The ark was made from acacia wood, and it was covered with gold. It was fitted with poles so that it could be lifted on the shoulders and carried by the Levites, who were the priests of Israel. And the priests of Israel alone were the people to carry the ark. No one was to touch the ark. Moses had been warned 
I love the boldness of Moses in Exodus when he says to the Lord, I want to see your glory. Show me your face. And God doesn't say no to his request, but instead says, I will show you just a very small glimpse of my glory. But in order to do that, I will have to hide you in the cleft of a rock. And literally, my arm and my, sh- my wing will have to overshadow you because you would die in an instant if you saw the full face of my glory. So, the ark is made from acacia, it's covered in gold, it's fitted with poles, no one can touch it, and nobody but the priests and the Levites are able to carry it. Two wooden poles, also covered with gold, which were never to be removed, were to be remaining in the ark of the covenant in order to transport it. They're nomadic, they have to move around. The ark and the tabernacle will need to move with them. They even took it with them in battle. The mercy seat or the atonement cover was solid gold and it fit on top of the ark. And there were two cherubim or angels facing one another made of pure gold and that is called the mercy seat. And this is the footstool of God or the very throne of God. It's meant to symbolize that and it was upon the mercy seat that God would speak to Moses. The Lord instructed Moses to put a golden jar with manna in it, Aaron's staff which had budded, And the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments were inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, fast forward to our context today. The Ark of the Covenant, God's holy presence. We read in 1 Samuel 4 that when Israel went into battle with the Philistines, they captured the Ark of the Covenant. God's holy presence was no longer with the people of God. It was literally stolen from them by the Philistines. The Philistines took the ark and they put it in the house of one of their, fast, uh, their false gods named Dagon. And in the morning when the idol was laying face down before the Lord, they woke up and th- this idol, Dagon, had fallen down before the very face of the Lord. And they said, you know what they, you know what they said, right? Dagon. So, <laughs> I, sorry. They put him back up and the next day, the false god had fallen again face down, but his face had broken off and his arms too. And the Philistines saw what was going on. And after seven months, they made a deal <clears throat> with the Israelites to return, to return the Ark of the Covenant, realizing their false god was no match. And in the process of carrying the Ark back, 70 men of Israel died and others said, who is able to stand before the Lord, his holy God? So, They were terrified. They didn't know what to do with it. They took the ark back to the house of Abinadab where his son, Eleazar, was put in charge of its care and it stayed there for 20 years. Now, at this time, Jerusalem has not yet been established as the capital city of the people of God, but now, right now, it is. And David is establishing Jerusalem as the capital city and he wants, as he's establishing his kingdom, he wants God's presence in the capital city. And so he goes to get the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where we find ourselves today. And there's three things about the presence of God we have to see as it relates to being a man or a a woman after God's own heart and worship. And the first is this. It's the presence of God in holiness and then the presence of God in blessing. And we need to see both of those things to become a person that lives in the presence of God filled with worship. First, the presence of God and holiness. David gathered his mighty men to go get the Ark. 30,000. That's about the size of the town that I grew up in high school. Imagine everybody 
in town gathering together to go get the ark. They got a brand new cart to carry the ark because this is God's Ark of the Covenant. We have to do it fancy, right? I mean, we can't just get some used cart on Craigslist. We're going to get a brand new cart to transport the Ark of the Covenant. This Abedinad's sons, Yuza and Ahio, were driving the cart, but how was the Ark of the Covenant meant to be carried and by whom? It's important we remember this in this story. Who's supposed to be carrying it? Only the Levites. Only the priest. How is it supposed to be carried? On their shoulders, not in a cart. Even though it's a 2017 model and it's got all the, you know, it doesn't matter. They are meant to carry it on their shoulder by the Levites and no one is meant to touch the ark. God has been very clear in this. It says in verse 5 that they were making merry before the Lord, before the Lord, which means at this moment God's presence is actually among them in the Ark of the Covenant. Their praise band has turned up the volume to 11, and they're playing their lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. But as they traveled, the oxen stumbled, and this Ark of the Covenant on the back of this cart is slipping and it's about to fall into the dirt and into the mud. And Yuza reaches out his hand to stop the Ark of the Covenant from going into the dirt and he dies. It says that God's anger breaks out against him and kills him right there. Now, maybe this is the first time you're hearing this story. I absolutely remember the first time I heard this story. This was the first time I read through the Bible. I never read the Bible, and up to the point that I'd read the Bible for the first time, not just devotionally, like here and there, but all the way through, I discovered that God is holy. Now, I knew he was holy and righteous, and I knew I was a sinner, but first reading through the Bible, I began to discover more and more that his ways are truly not like mine. And I used to say, well, my God would never do things like kill a guy like Yusuf for touching a cart. Like, but then I read it, and he did. So what's going on here? 2 Samuel 6, 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there besides the ark of God. Yuza was just doing what he thought was right. The ark of God in all its glorious golden splendor was about to fall in the dirt, in the mud. But touching the ark was in direct violation of God's law. And why? Why the law? What is this law about? It sounds so arbitrary. If you think, though, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Is it simply a golden box with angels on top? It is the very presence of God, and we've already started understanding as as we talked this morning that God is holy and that we're not And that God had warned them that his presence was something they were not able to enter into unmediated. That they would lose their life. Yuza believed that there was something more dirty in the dirt than there was in his own heart and life. He assumed there was something wrong with the the Ark of the Covenant touching mud or dirt. And that he should stop that. But what he failed to realize is dirt is just dirt. Mud is doing what mud is supposed to do, all for the glory of God. And same with the, 
the dust of the earth. There's nothing wrong with the dirt, but there is something wrong with the human heart, and it's separated from God, and he lost his life because of it. But after this incident, David became angry at God, it says, and he was filled with fear over what happened, I would imagine so, and he fled the presence of God. And I can understand that. I can relate to David's anger, and I can relate to David's fear. And he did what we all do when we're in a relationship with someone and we're angry and we're fearful. We flee, we run, and that's exactly what he did. He made a plan and he said, let's take the Ark of the Covenant to this other man's house instead of taking it to Jerusalem, to Obed-Eden's house. God is holy, I am not holy, and that's a problem. But the presence of God also brings blessing. On the one hand, the ark of God brought judgment, it brought death. They didn't pay attention to how the ark should be transported because of God's presence and the holiness of his character, and people died because of it. But on the other hand, when God, the ark of the covenant, came into this man's house, Obed-Edom's, in the span of just three months, this man was blessed. Enormously so, so much so that word was getting out. Some people went to David and said, you remember that guy, Obed? He's got the ark of the covenant, and you're, you know, in his his house for you, he's blessed in every way. Uh, people who were sick in his house, they're no, they're no longer sick. He's won, he's won Powerball like four times. I mean, his wife is crazy about him. His kids obey him. I mean, just business is good. It's just the guy's blessed. And that's, that's usually how we define blessing, right? Only in tangible and material ways. I don't know what the actual blessing was like. I have no idea. But the man was blessed to his core. People came to David saying, you know, this man is blessed. So David says, well, in that case, let's go get the ark and let's bring it to Jerusalem. Now, here's what happens. The presence of God leads David to worship. David gathered a parade of people to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, presumably this time with priests and with poles. And every time they walked, just six steps, it says, they stopped to sacrifice an animal to God. To, to thank God, they would stop every six steps to thank him. Can you imagine? I'm not sure the distance between Obed-Edom's house and, and the city gates of Jerusalem, but that's probably a decent amount. Every six steps, stopping to have a full-on church service. It would take quite a while. It says that David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and then he was wearing a simple linen ephod, a simple priestly garment opposed to his kingly robes. This type of dancing that David did before the Lord was unashamed joy and love. And worship like this comes after a true change of heart. This behavior reminds me of a person who's had some enormous weight or burden removed from their life. This is a man who's had his heart and his life changed. He has seen God do glorious things. He's come to understand himself and God in unique and new ways, and he is relieved. He is dancing with joy. 
in your life, perhaps you've not broke out in a whirling dance. It literally describes it in Hebrew in ways that we're kind of would be ashamed, like Michael would be ashamed of him. It's like whirling and twirling and, and dancing around like a child would before their parent, just with giddy joy, laughing, and, and he's wearing this linen ephod. She's so ashamed. This is his wife, Michael. This was Saul's daughter, and she's so ashamed of the way he's dressed, not as a king. Why do you think he did that? just as, a, as one of the other priests. Because he's saying symbolically, I am a king, but the king of glory is coming into the city gate. I'm just your king, but I'm a human king. I have a birth date and I have a death date, but the king of kings, the king of glory is coming. I can't wear my priestly garments in light of that. And on the, at the same time, God's presence is blessing David and anointing David even further as the king as he enters into the capital city. This is a man who has come to experience God in his fullness and whose life has been difficult. We've been studying his, his life up to this point and it gets more difficult after. We can relate to David when he's angry with God because of Uzzah. I can relate to him in his fear fleeing the presence of God. And the pain and the brokenness we experience is so real and so tangible. It's easy, easy in life to become angry with God. Easy in life to run in fear. But I'm so thankful that David doesn't give in to his anger or his fear. And he eventually lets God be God. In all of his mysterious ways, and while he is the king of Israel, he's so humble in the way he worships the Lord. And I think every one of us, we want to get to this place. I know I would love to be in this place in an ongoing way of where I'm worshiping and experiencing the Lord's presence in the way that David is. Just unabandoned, unashamed joy. Who cares what people think? Who care what I'm wearing? You know, who cares what what people are saying about me, I just am filled with the joy of the Lord and I'm gonna dance and I'm gonna sing and I'm gonna shout and I'm gonna talk about it. He does it in public, in front of everybody. He's just open and, and dancing in the joy of the Lord. This is a man who has endured so much suffering, so much difficulty, so much anger, so m all, the, all the emotions, and he's gotten to this place because he is allowing the king of glory to be God in his fullness. And I just ask you, friends, are you allowing the Lord to be the Lord of your life? Whether you're allowing him or not doesn't change who he is. And when we conceive of God in ways that are not his fullness and we minimize him and truncate him and you can do that in lots of different ways one of the ways that we do that is that we just say well he's a God of righteous anger he just is and I can avoid him and I can stay away from him and I'm going to keep him in a box you know I'm going to keep him over here and I'm going to stay away from him because God is a God of righteous anger and he's just and I know that and I know I'm a sinner but I'm just going to stay away from him because I'm just going to keep him over here because that's safer for me to define him as just a mean, angry God. That's one way to do it. 
But many of us in our day and age are, are doing the opposite of that. We're, we're making God small by saying, God certainly is loving and kind and gracious and blesses us in everything, but I know he would never have any holy, righteous anger towards, towards anyone. And when we do that, we make him smaller than he is. We need to see God in all of his fullness. And life is so difficult and so mysterious. But as we come to him in his fullness and we allow him to be who he is in his character, we can experience his presence and be moved to great life and heart change in worship. And I have to say the times in my life when I've been moved to this type of joy, it has been on the other side of great suffering. It's when you see the the sweet taste of answered prayer. When you see the Lord faithful, even when he does not answer the prayer that you want and the person that you've been praying for dies or some great tragedy takes place. But he remains faithful and you see it. To live is to experience brokenness and pain and and the older we get, the more, more likely that is to happen and it's easy to become bitter, but when we recognize God and his holiness and his sovereignty, in his power and his glory and his mercy and his love and his kindness, we are moved to worship, moved to joy. And David got to the place where he was worshiping God with a fullness of heart that I only hope to get to. Now, back to this Ark of the Covenant. And it's so beautiful in its symbolism and it points us to Jesus. The mercy seat was set on top of the Ark And when the high priest went to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, which was one day set aside for the priest to atone for the sins of all of Israel, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they would go and they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, on the presence of God. And when the Lord saw the blood of the unblemished lamb, bulls and goats, he had mercy on them and he forgave their sin. And all of this was a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of atonement at a different mountain when the Son of God, who was Emmanuel, God with us, the perfect presence of God, God in all his fullness, all of his glory, perfectly represented before us in Jesus Christ when he atoned for our sins by shedding his blood. And when Jesus died and breathed his last, it says in the Gospels that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was this thick veil that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided and where only the high priest would go in to make sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And on the moment of his death in Mark 15, it says as he breathed his last, the veil in the temple was torn in two. What is going on there? The presence of God is no longer localized in the Ark of the Covenant because Christ has paid the full atonement for our sin and the presence of God rips through the curtain in the holies of holies and then just days later on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers And the presence of God comes upon us and we are now called the temple of the living God. Through Jesus Christ, the very presence of God can come upon you and his holiness 
in his glory through the Holy Spirit, we now, we now have the very presence of the living God by the grace of God. And if, if that isn't enough to move us to worship, what will? We have the very presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you're a holy God. Holy, holy, holy are you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are infinitely glorious. You're you're omnipresent, you're omnipotent. There's no end to your power, and yet in your mercy and kindness, you gave your presence to Israel. You gave your presence to that family of Obeds. You followed David in your presence. You led him from great fear and anger to joy. And now we have the fullness of your glory and the fullness of your presence in your son, Jesus Christ, who when he died and rose and went to you said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will send the helper to you, and you have, we have your Holy Spirit. And even though this is only a taste of your coming presence and glory, and there's a city, a city where there's a river and that will make us glad because of your perfect presence, we long for that day. Oh Lord, we thank you that your presence is with us today, and we long for the day when your full presence will be among us when that glorious city will come down to earth. Father, help us to live in light of your fullness and who you are. Help us to not create or imagine you in ways that you are not, but let you be God in your fullness and have our heart changed by that in true worship. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.